as the kids are going. If you're a guest with us and want your children to go, we do have um, our Disciple Town. It meets just over here in the Fellowship Hall for those elementary school children uh, up to fourth grade. And we have preschool classes as well. But before we, if you would take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be one in the pew somewhere around you. Exodus 20 is on page 61 of that Bible. Exodus 20, page 61. Um, a couple of things actually before we begin. First, just a reminder that if you uh, are going to be part of the lemonade stand for Isaiah 117, and you'd like to stay after. We're going to have some pizza in the fellowship hall and be making posters for those. Uh, it's a great time just for the whole family to be part of that ministry. Um, several families who probably would be there are sick, and so uh, whoever comes gets the pizza. So sick people miss out on pizza. That's how it goes. Uh, but the other thing that I would say is that just a few weeks ago, we recognized uh, all of our uh, those who have graduated from, from various uh, places with various degrees. And uh, one was so eager to not be recognized that he left town for six weeks thinking that we would forget. Um, little did he know. Uh, but uh, we do want to just celebrate God's kindness in bringing you, Ben Tierney, through uh, his uh, physical therapy assistant. Is that with, who, what, uh, what is the, which university is it? UND at University of Indianapolis. Now, Ben has graduated here a couple of times, so <laughs> we're running out of things to give you. But this, this biography of Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore is absolutely the best missionary biography I have ever read. If you haven't read it, uh, I would encourage you to, but I think this will be an encouragement to you, my friend. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulate Ben on his graduation. Yeah. Exodus chapter 20. It is good to celebrate these things, isn't it? We're, we're a family, and families uh, celebrate all of these important moments, important times. What I want to do is actually just read the first three verses of Exodus 20, and then we'll pray, uh, and, then, and then we'll launch in to see what the Lord would teach us. This is what the Spirit of God says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that what we know not you will teach us. Teach us, Lord. And what we are not, you will make us. Give us grace to understand your words. Send your Spirit, Lord, to fill me, I pray, as your servant, that you would fill me to speak with clarity communicating your truth to your people for your glory. Through these words, Lord, today, would you strengthen us 
strengthen your church? And would you call those who don't know Jesus, would you call them to yourself even today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2015, uh, seven of us from uh, Gray Road here traveled to North India where we spent time visiting and seeing the work of the Delhi Bible Institute, who has been one of our mission partners for several years now. On that trip, uh, we visited a Hindu temple in the city of Varanasi. Once you remove your shoes, you go in, and in there you will come to room after room and statue after statue of gods. And before some of them, people are praying, some are sitting in silence, some are burning candles, they're worshiping. It really is, if you've never been experienced something like that, it is a jarring experience. And many American Christians today, maybe in your mind, you hear something like that, and even though your head's not moving, you're kind of shaking your head mentally, like, what? Why? How could anyone do that? Worship multiple gods. It doesn't make sense. It's just wrong. Well, it's actually been happening for millennia. Ancient cultures were known for their multiple gods. You remember the scene in Acts 17. Paul is in Athens and he's walking the streets. And he comes upon idol after idol after idol, God after God after God, even an idol to an unknown God to try to cover the religious bases. The fact is, is that the acceptance and worship of other gods or many gods is alive and well today. But what might surprise you is that it's not just in something like Hinduism or some other ism that you might find. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and rituals. Each one has its shrines whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of beauty, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. You see, the, the issue of, of worshiping multiple gods actually isn't an issue primarily of statues and temples. It's actually a matter of the heart. That's even true when there are statues and temples. 
This is one of the perennial problems in the nation of Israel is that they keep going after other gods. But then in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, God points out the severity of the problem that these people have taken the idols into their hearts. It's not just that they're out there somewhere. It's that they're in here. The heart has gone completely wrong. So really, anything can become a God to us and for us. Friendship, romantic love, family, money, power, entertainment, pleasure, rest, comfort, technology, fame, sport, politics, health, fitness, beauty, intellect, career, life dreams. And the list just goes on. You see, good things become gods when they dominate our lives. Good things become gods when they dominate our loves, when we look to them for security and for protection and for fulfillment and for meaning. Myra Fleener says it well in the movie Hoosiers. Gods come pretty cheap nowadays, don't they? You become one by putting a leather ball in an iron hoop. Gods are everywhere. Gods are a bit like rabbits. They multiply without you even knowing it. And there are just more and more and more. And being devoted to these gods is alive and well today, even among those who call themselves Christians. I would wonder, would we even have to walk out the doors before we found other gods lodged in the heart? And it's into this pluralism, it's into this plurality of worship that God comes and speaks clearly. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been moving at quite a quick pace in Exodus, haven't we? I mean, we took, we've taken one, two, four chapters at a time. But here we come to Mount Sinai to these Ten Commandments, and we're going to stop running, and we're going to stroll, and we're going to walk one by one through these commandments. You see, this first commandment is foundational to the rest, and really it's foundational to the whole of the Bible. If you think about the whole message of the Bible, isn't one way to set it up, to, to summarize it, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So that even the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that one way you can describe a person who is not a Christian becoming a Christian is that they turn from idols to serve the one true and living God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, to understand this, I just want to ask three questions. What is the command? Why the command? And who's the command for? So first, what is this command? What does it mean for God to say, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, to put it very simply, what God is saying is that He is, com he is commanding absolute loyalty in all of life. 
That's it. It's as easy as that. Absolute loyalty in all of life. And in the ancient world, um, this is an unusual idea, like I said, when it comes to religion, because every nation is polytheistic. They all have, they, a nation will have multiple gods, and they'll all coexist with one another. And every nation just assumes that every other nation has its own gods. I mean, a person could honor one god for a while because this is going on in life. And then when life circumstances change, well, they're going to go over and show more, give more attention to this God over here to try to find help. Well, and that would all be fine. I mean, that kind of thing actually happens today, doesn't it? This is not left to the ancient world. There are people who will sit in a room like this and sing songs like the one that we sang and hear sermons like this one. Maybe they'll even hear a sermon where the text is, you shall have no other gods before me. And they'll leave thinking, yes, yes. And then on Tuesday, the stress comes. And so they turn to Zen Buddhist meditation to try to empty their minds. Or they decide because of their deep sadness, they're going to eat the communion of cookies and milk. Or in, o in order to deal with the pain of life, they just want it to go away, so they're going to binge watch on Netflix or YouTube. Or they'll play video games. Or they'll spend hours at the gym. Or they'll dive hard into work. Or they'll turn to a bottle or a pill. The, the rotating door of gods is not one that only existed in the ancient world. It's one that people walk through today. They invite these gods in thinking, well, that god was fine for Sunday, but now it's Tuesday. I need to get the new god in here. That god really only works in spaces like this. So... I need to find something that will work in this room over here and in that room over there. And like I said, in the ancient world, this, this kind of rotating door was fine. I mean, this was the mentality in religion. But when you got to politics, no way, Jose. Kings demand absolute loyalty. Okay? You can't, you can't go shopping for another king just because your circumstances change. If you go shopping for another king, that's treason, and there are severe punishments for that. And actually, that's the kind of loyalty that God is speaking of here. He is the king, and he alone must be king. No circumstances make it okay to go shopping for a new God. You see, with God, it's all or it's nothing. There is no dabbling with God. It's like marriage. You can't just go dabbling around and think you're keeping your marriage vows. And so essentially this command is telling us don't be wooed by the other gods. Don't commit adultery against God. Don't be so lax, so comfortable, so proud that you wind up in the arms of other gods. 
Don't serve them. Don't chase after them. Don't worship them. Don't make offerings to them. Don't turn to them in times of need. Don't even, Exodus 23, 13 says, don't even let their names come across your lips. It's high treason against the most high God. Absolute loyalty. Unless we think this is just like a flash in the pan, God's just trying to get their attention, this comes back over and over again. The people of Israel get into the promised land, and after they've conquered and after the land is divided, Joshua looks at them and says, put away all the gods from beyond the river and Egypt and serve the Lord. And then later, this, like I said, this is a perennial problem in Israel. They've got, a, they've got a flirtatious eye with other gods. They've got a wandering heart. And so they think they can have both and. And Elijah looks at them in, in, in 1 Kings 18 and says, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve Him. But if Baal is God, serve Him. Well, this is just Old Testament, you say. Actually, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? You cannot serve God and money. And you can put anything else where the money goes in that sentence. You cannot serve God and. It's all or nothing. Absolute loyalty. And it must be in all of life. You shall have no other gods before me, meaning in my presence. Now, there are plenty of times in the Bible when the idea of presence speaks of formal gatherings, okay? So, Psalm 95 verse 2 says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. There's a sense in which God's people gather, they come into his presence to sing and to hear his word and to do all of those things. But this command is not limiting itself to this room as if what God is really saying is, well, look, just there's a place outside. Just check your gods at the door, and then you'll come in and spend time with me. And then once you leave, well, then you can pick up your gods on the way out and worship them through the week. Because the only thing that matters is that you don't bring them in here. That would be like that would be like a wife saying to her husband as he goes off to work, "Look, as long as you're faithful in the house, all is well. As long as you know you're not wandering when you're in the four walls of our home." That's not the kind of presence that that this is meant to speak of. That this command is not limited like that. This presence is more like the presence of Psalm 139. Where shall I go? from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven you are there if I make my bed in Sheol you are there you see friends when we do anything we do it in God's presence we do it before him there's a Latin phrase to describe this coram Deo before the face of God God is saying As if we haven't been clear enough, God is saying, no gods anywhere at any time for any reason in any part of your life 
at any point in your life. Absolute loyalty in all of life. In other words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the command. But why this command? That's the second question. Why the command? Why the call for absolute loyalty in all of life? Well, let me give you three reasons. You could probably think of more, but let me just give you three big reasons that come out of the Bible here. The first is the work of God. Why the command? Because of who God is and what God's done. The work of God. Look at verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, in reality, this is a preamble to every commandment. Every commandment's why is right there because of who God is and because of what God has done. The God who is speaking is the God who has saved them. It's not that they owe God, you understand, okay? It's not that God has saved them and now they need to pay back that debt of being saved. Um, I was just reading just yesterday uh, in William Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor, and he talks about He talks about how the enemy comes along and basically says, you know, you're trying to serve the Lord, but your works are tainted. You're never going to be able to pay back God basically with this awful money, this bent-up coinage and all stuff that you try to offer to him. And then Gurnall says, in order to combat that, here's what you need to think about, is that there are two ways to think about uh, giving money, he says. There's the way that you give money in order to pay back debt. So if you go into the bank and you shred up all of the dollar bills for your mortgage payment and you dump it on their desk, they're not going to take it, right? You just tear it all up. But if your son pulls out his last dollar that was ripped and he's taped back together and he hands it to you and he says, Happy Father's Day, Daddy. You'll take it every day, won't you? Every day. Because one is trying to pay a debt and the other is a token of love. They can't pay God back. We can't pay God back for His grace, for His mercy, for what He's done for us. And here God is saying, you you were slaves. You were oppressed. You were hopeless. And I redeemed you. I bought you out of that. I bought your freedom. I defeated the gods of Egypt. I defeated the army of Egypt. So you've been set free not to be your own people, but actually to be something far better than being your own people. You've been set free to be my people. And actually this is the case for Christians as well, isn't it? Jesus has gone to the cross and shed his blood for us to pay the penalty for our sin, to set us free from sin, to forgive us of our sin, to give us hope of eternal life. This kind of love, that kind of death for us, it 
just woos us to absolute loyalty. It deserves absolute loyalty. We've been set free from slavery and brought in to belong to God. He is ours and we are His. And He says that you are bought with a price. You're no longer your own. So, you friend, it's not just that God demands absolute loyalty. It's that God deserves absolute authority. He is worthy because of who He is, because of what He's done. The second reason why this command is because of the supremacy of God. When you read the Old Testament, you find God's supremacy coming back over and over and over again. Other gods, you see, are made of silver and gold and stone, and they're made by craftsmen. But this God, (laughs) this God made the silver. This God made the gold. This God made the stone. This God made the craftsmen and gave them their abilities. He is supreme. We read at the beginning of the service, other gods have eyes but can't hear, ears, uh, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, noses but can't smell, hands but can't feel, feet but can't walk, mouths but can't talk. But this God sees, and He hears, and He speaks. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 18, On Mount Carmel, there are 450 prophets of this other god, Baal, and they can't pray loud enough or long enough or sincere enough to make Baal do anything to demonstrate his power. But then Elijah the prophet prays to God, this God, and he sends fire from heaven and displays his power and shows he is supreme. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the ark of the covenant of God, which was a symbol of God's presence with His people, this ark is captured, and it's taken to the temple of a false god, Dagon, and it's put in there. And when that happened, everybody around knew what the message was, that Dagon is supreme to that god. Well, in the night, that god knocked over the statue of Dagon and cut off his head and cut off his hands, showing Dagon has no real life. Dagon has no real power. He is supreme. This is why Moses teaches the people to sing in Exodus 15 after they've come across, come through the Red Sea. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is no one. No one is like you. It's why Jethro in chapter 18, verse 11 says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. He is supreme. And friends, I just want you to remember this. The gods that we create... The gods that we chase who are no God at all. They have no real life and they have no real power. Not career, not health, not beauty, not your intellect, not your athleticism, not your children, 
and not even your spouse. I remember there was one time that Tim Keller talked about uh, uh, he and his wife, Kathy, and he was saying that if, if my hope is in my spouse, if I am trusting in my spouse, if my spouse is godlike to me, then on the day when one of us loses the other one, I have no hope left. You see, these things and many others are, can be great blessings in our life, can't they? But as gods, they are headless and handless. They have no real life and no real power. This God is supreme. Give this God your undying allegiance. Give Him your absolute loyalty in all of life. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the third reason for this command is the pluralism of their day. Now, I've mentioned that already in general, but let me get specific for a minute. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt. And Egypt literally had gods for everything. They had gods for the fields, for the river, for light, for darkness, for sun, for moon, love, war, intellect, fertility, childbirth, and more. And during the years in, in Egypt, it seems, according to Ezekiel, that there was some slipping into going after these other gods. God says to Ezekiel that he had told his people, don't go after them, don't don't do that. But then in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8, he says, They rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. They came from a place with a lot of gods. And you remember where they're going? They're going to Canaan. You know what they're going to find in Canaan? Whole new set of gods. Plenty more gods to choose from. So here at Mount Sinai, God says, No matter how tempting it is to bring along the gods of Egypt, no matter how tempting it is to pick up new gods once you get to Canaan, no matter how publicly or passionately the world around you goes after other gods, don't do it. Don't fall for it. It'll be like drinking salt water. It's just going to leave you more thirsty afterwards. You shall have no other gods. Remember, remember the work, how he rescued you. Remember his supremacy over all the other gods. Resist the pluralism of your day. Resist chasing after powerless, headless, handless gods. And give your absolute authority and absolute loyalty in all of life to this God. Question three. Who is the command for? Who's the command for? Well, that seems pretty obvious because this is Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, this nation that's been rescued, and that is true. But there's something interesting in these Ten Commandments. I don't know if it would have been pointed out. It wasn't pointed out to me uh, until not that long ago. But in these commands, the... When, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he doesn't say, y'all shall have no other gods before me. He says, you. It's singular. 
It's not plural. Now, in some sense, that makes sense because the Lord is speaking to Israel as a whole. However, there are plenty of other times, in fact, most times, when God gives commands to his people, he gives them in the plural. And yet, at this fundamental moment, he does not. He gives it in a singular, as if each man, each woman, each boy, each girl must hear this. Each man, each woman, each boy, each girl must obey this. It's as if God has come and put his hands on the cheeks of each child and looked them in the eyes and says, You shall have no other gods before me. I wonder, have you ever been in a service like this when a pastor is preaching and it feels like he's speaking directly to you? Now you know there are other people in the room. You know that preacher is addressing the whole group. And yet, the Word of God is coming with such clarity and power and conviction to your heart. It's so intensely personal that at that moment, it's like you're the only one in the room. I think that's how God wants us to hear these commands. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't given simply so that we will display them in government buildings or in public places. They're not given to be wall art in your house or bookmarks in your Bible or bumper stickers on your car or, you know, blankets over the back of your couch. They're not even given to be a rallying cry for the church to cheer them and amen them and bemoan society's ignorance of them. They're given to be written on our hearts and obeyed in our lives. They're given to shape the way we think about God, to shape the way we live for God, to help us walk humbly with Him. They don't just call y'all to obey. And they don't just call us to obey. They call you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And every one of us. To think differently and live differently in light of who God is and what He has done for us. Through this commandment, God is asking, do you have other gods? What has priority over me in your life? Once you step outside these doors, what takes over? What is it you chase when you're not sitting here with the pastor looking in you in your eyes. And it looks at me and says, what are you chasing when you're not standing there preaching and looking into their eyes? Is your loyalty divided? Are you giving your heart to another? Are you chasing things during the week thinking God can't see it, thinking God will just turn a blind eye to that? God understands what is it that you must have in order for you to feel satisfied, to feel like life is really fulfilled? What is it that if you lost that thing, 
you don't know that you could go on. You answer those questions, and you're starting to get into the zip code of the gods that are lodged in your heart. What rules your life? What governs it? What guides it? Do you have other gods? Elizabeth Barrett Browning was an English poet of the 19th century, and she wrote a poem called Idols. And it begins this way. How weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. I have been an idolater of three, and three times they betrayed me. Now, she goes on to write of beauty, of fame, of love, how frustrated she gets with all of them because they don't last, they don't work, they don't comfort her, they don't satisfy her. So in the end, she curses them all and goes a different way. She says to these gods, crumble like stone. My voice no longer shall wail their names who silent be. There is a voice that soundeth stronger. My daughter, give thine heart to me. Lord, take mine heart, O first and fairest, whom all creation's ends shall hear, who deathless love in death declarest. None else is beauteous, famous, dear. The deathless love The love that never dies has been declared in the death of Jesus. And she sees it. God is the beautiful one. God is the famous one. God is the dear one. And so she turns from her idols to serve the one true and living God. She repents. You see, the The lasting question that ought to resound in our hearts this morning is not, do you have other gods? Though that's an important question. The question that ought to wrestle each one of us to the ground and keep us pinned until we answer it is this, will you repent? Will you repent? Will you stop chasing things that will never satisfy? Will you leave behind the other gods. Will you give your absolute loyalty in all of life to the God whose undying love for you has been declared in the death of Jesus? Because with this God, it's all or nothing. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how these words pierce our hearts. How often we have chased after things in this world, chasing dreams like they will fulfill us, chasing fitness like it will satisfy us, 
chasing marriage like it will fulfill us, chasing a career thinking that will be what finally satisfies me, chasing pleasures that come at us in this world faster than we can even tell. How often we have given our hearts to another. And we are thankful for the deathless love proclaimed in the death of Jesus. And we pray, God, that you will give us grace so that our hearts are wooed by the death of Jesus, by your great love, your compassion, your mercy. so that we stay true to you, so that we will have no other gods before you. God, we pray that these words would not just be part of a set that we want to be displayed in various places around us, outside of us, but it would be a deep abiding truth that is on display inside of us, in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.